0: This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 17, Ken Erickson. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches to share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim talks with current head coach of the USA Women's Softball team, Ken Erickson.
1: The only way to control a ball game is to control your emotions. And and that's basically what he said. You know, you lose control of a game when you lose control of your emotions, and he continually harped on that. You know, you can't get too high, you can't get too low. You can play intensely You can have passion, but you cannot lose the point of your emotion.
0: Ken talks about how controlling your emotions is key to controlling the game, the lessons he learned while playing for Hall of Famer Robin Roberts, and how his playing experience as a catcher has influenced him as a coach.
2: Ken, I want to start off by introducing you to our audience. Ken Erickson is currently head coach of the USA Women's Softball Team most recently, in July 2011, he guided the USA team to the World Cup championships over Japan. Ken joined the USA women's softball team as an assistant coach in 2001 and helped coach the team to a gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. He has been the head coach at the University of Southern Florida for softball since 1997. While an undergraduate there, he played baseball for Hall of Famer Robin Roberts, who, Ken, as you know, was a, a hero of mine growing up. Mm-hmm. After graduating, Ken turned his attention away from baseball to men's fast-pitch softball, where he went on to have a long career of international play. In 1991, Ken was a catcher on the U.S. national fast-pitch team that won a silver medal at the Pan American Games in Cuba. In 1992, he was named first-team all-world as a catcher. He retired in 1997 after winning an ASA men's national championship. Ken currently lives in Tampa with his wife and two daughters. Ken, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And that that long list there, um, is making me feel old. <laughs> that's that's uh, and, and and the years you're telling uh, on those things are, are definitely telltale. But uh, yeah, I know maybe had, we uh, shouldn't do
2: that. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that's okay. I, I've had a great uh, great experience with the game fast pitch. A great experience with athletics. So it's uh, it's fun to hear those things again and again.
2: And as you and I talked before, um, you know, I had some experience playing at a very much lower level with fast-pitch softball when I was in high school and college, and really a fantastic game. Um, Ken, let me start by asking you, as um, you, you played catcher, did has that influenced your ability to be a coach? Was, um, you know, were you influenced by the fact that you played catcher?
1: Well, you know, it, uh, I've, I've said this, that um, I think the position... Helped me become a better coach. Uh, the position itself is very uh, detail-oriented. It's it's also very encompassing in trying to be not just the uh, uh, the backstop behind the plate, uh, but also a psychologist with the pitcher and and running the defense at times and making sure that everything's under control and establishing relationships with with the umpires. So you wear many hats as a catcher. Uh, as I said, I think it facilitated. Me to become a better coach by being in that position, uh, no question.
2: You, you played for baseball. You played baseball for Robin Roberts, and um, you know one of the things that really struck me about Robin as a pitcher for the for the Phillies, he won I think twenty eight games one year for maybe what was the worst team in in Major League Baseball at the time. Um, just an amazing year, and if they'd had a better you know better team at the time, he could have won thirty five. What what uh, what did you learn from uh, as a coach from learning to play, uh, playing for him
1: well you know Robin was uh, he was a gentleman in all facets of the game, and that was even sometimes they called him gentleman rob he, he took the game um, to be played at a very very high respected uh, level he, he always had a reputation as he never threw it at, at a hitter, and he didn 't think that that was necessary um, to get points across. he said hey, you know what just beat him." beat them fair and square don't throw at them don't do those type of things uh don't go out of the uh, extraordinary efforts to show somebody up um he played the game the way the game was supposed to be played um i think that the guys that he taught during that time and we were very fortunate we were the first team that usf uh baseball team to go to the ncaa tournament in 1982 and i uh, are come up on a 30 year anniversary believe it or not and um, the one uh, the scintillating part of that whole season was that we started five guys that were non-scholarship recruits that decided to come down to the U.S. and play because of the, the schedule was great um, and showed a lot of work ethic, but that was the type of guy that he liked, and the guy that would go out there and play with his heart, play with passion, and play the game the right way. You know, you slid hard into the base, but you picked a guy up. Um, you just played it at a very classy, classy level, and he treated us like professionals, you know, and uh, as long as we were going to act professional on our, on our lives off the field, in the classroom and those type of things, he was going to continue to do that. And uh, I learned one thing from him was that respect is a two-way street. You know, I don't think you can demand respect as a coach to the players. I think you have to earn it and then vice versa. And I think that two-way line of communication, that two-way authoritative type of respect, uh, he let the players cement their legacies. He facilitated it, but he let them cement it. i I think that was probably the biggest thing I I took from Robin.
2: Wow, that's great. You know, often it seems like people, men especially, but they show they're tough by getting angry or, uh, you know, nasty. And um, I've always felt, and we always talk about, you know, a positive coach, uh, there's a discipline involved. It's it's easy to lose control and just kind of snarl at somebody, especially if you have power over them. Um, And it really seems like he didn't, didn't take advantage of his power to he showed his toughness in a whole different way
1: he did you know and, and there's a quote I have on my desk from him um, and the girls on my team see it all the time anybody's ever played for me see it is that the only way to control a ball game is to control your emotions and and that's basically what he said you know you lose control of a game when you lose control of your emotions and he continually <clears> harped on that you know you can't get too high you can't get too low you can play intensely you can have passion, but you cannot lose the point of your emotion and not getting out of control. Those type of things, and um, you know that to this day, it's it's made it very easy for me uh, to reflect back and say, "Hey, look, you know, it's 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 a game that kids play. <laughs> that's that's the bottom line, and uh, it's a game that we play because we love it. And you know, you need to check your egos at the door. And it's not about the coach; it's about the players. And uh, I think that was that was a big you know, instilling point that he uh, he he put up on people.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, after you graduated, you moved from baseball to men's fast-pitch softball. Can you just talk about how that all happened and what your thinking was there?
1: Yeah, you know, that that was a pretty exciting time, actually. I was done with baseball and uh, trying to find something that scratched my itch for competition, and in all honesty, slow pitch is a great game, but it didn't do that for me. You know, coming off of a uh, high-level college ball and then uh, you know the semi-pro stuff that was very, very high level down here in the South, and um, all of a sudden, a friend of mine, you know, said, "Hey, why don't you come on out and give this a shot?" I was like, "No, oh, no." You know, it's it's softball. He goes, "No, it's not really softball." And in fact, you got to go down and watch the the women's fast pitch coach at USF uh, pitch a little bit to his girls in BP. And I just happened to be working in recreational sports while I was going for a master's degree. And I went down there, and I watched this guy throw, and I was like, wow. And then I watched the girls throw, and I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, they needed a hitting coach, so the guy asked me, because he knew me from baseball, I was doing some hitting instruction, he asked me if I'd join the team to help out. And I said, well, I really don't know about that. And then the head coach at the time brought me in and said, well, we can pay for your graduate work. I said, well, you know, this is a different story now. <laughs> so came out and uh, started working with them and was really enthralled by the game, and the pitcher then came up again, as this other guy did, said, why don't you come out and play with us? We're going over to play against the Clearwater Bombers in Clearwater. And I had obviously heard about the Clearwater Bombers, men's fast-pitch team from Hurd, Dudley's, days, and this and that. I went out, and we played against this team. And uh, we hung tough with them. It was 0-0 in the 12th inning, and, and then we scored a run. And the challenge, the going to the plate against these guys that were throwing the ball anywhere between 78, 84 miles an hour, was amazing to me, the ball movement. you know. So you really had to shorten up your approach and everything, and it really became a challenge to myself. As I began coaching through the time and watching the girls play, starting to, to, to now make that transition into the hitting style that's very rampant today. Um, they had never been taught anything before, because pitching was a dominant factor of the game back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as game went on, game went on, I just happened to get a little better at it because I practiced because the challenge was there. I really took it to heart and, and really went out and hit every day against the guys that were throwing to me in batting practice and learned to hit the rise ball and hit the drop and, and so forth. Well, the funny story is we're playing our fourth game of the year uh, that summer, and uh, our, our catcher went down. and I was an outfielder pitcher uh, in college. And the catcher went down. So Dan Neamey, who was the coach at the time, says, what do you think? You go behind the plate? Because you catch me in, in, off the sidelines of practice so for the girls. But why don't you give it a shot behind the plate? And I said, Dan, I'll tell you right now, I don't know if I, I can do that. I mean, your ball moves all over. He says, don't worry about it. Just relax. You caught me in BP. Everything's fine. Well, there's a big difference, Jim, between BP and a game. Because the first rise ball that he threw me in a ball game hit the umpire right in a mask. <laughs> well, so now I'm calling drop ball. And so the guys, Dan's throwing drop, drop. So I said, all right, I figure I'll give it a rise ball, one more shot, and the next one hit the umpire in a mask. Johnny Gage was the umpire at the time of the Clearwater. He was a very good umpire. So now the counts two balls, two strikes, he takes his mask off. and He says, son, that ball hits me again. I'm throwing you out of the game. And I'm figuring, <laughs> you come from baseball, there's no way in the world they can throw a catcher out if the umpire gets hit. Well, sure and behold, that there was a rule that if the umpire feels like he's in danger, he could throw you out. I didn't know this rule. We had nine players. The next pitch hit him in a mask. I got thrown out. and We forfeited the first game I ever caught. Wow. I took him down to the bullpen afterwards. Dan Neiman said, I want you to throw me rise balls. And he sat there for 45 minutes and threw me rise balls, rise balls, rise balls. And from that point on, I was a catcher in fast pitch softball for the next 12 years. It was amazing.
2: You know, there's, a, there's a, a, a tool or a concept we use with, with youth coaches. Um, it's called the Just right Challenge, and it, it comes from some research where, where kids were given these puzzles, uh, graduated difficulty from 1 to 12, and, and kids were given a, a pretest that, you know, wh- where they were at, at the puzzle level, and then they were allowed to play with any puzzle they wanted, and every kid picked a puzzle that was just one level more difficult than they could do easily and the the researchers called that the just right challenge, and it, it seems like that's what happened to you with with fast pitch softball it was It was the just right challenge that engaged you. You weren't thinking of doing it, but it just grabbed you and and there you were
1: yeah I, I think that's what happens to a lot of people in golf to tell you the truth. you know it's a game that doesn't ever seem like you're going to master it, but it's a challenge every single day and uh, I can see that you know, but what concerns me more than else nowadays is that i I, I don't see that enough um I see. This being a generation of a reset generation, and they get on the computer, and if the game is not going right, they just hit a button, and all of a sudden it's reset, and we start again instead of carrying it through. You know we see it at, at an elite level where the challenges want to be made, but i but I feel like nowadays we need to influence a little bit more of the challenges at younger ages and not just you know change teams, go from here to there just because things are not working out, and I think we need to do a better job of that
2: yeah no, that's great um, how do you think having played softball at such an elite level helps you as a head coach today and, and let me um, mention Skip Kenny who's the, the men's swimming coach at Stanford and he never competed as a swimmer and yet he's won something like 20 Pac-10 now Pac-12 titles in a row so obviously you don't need to play at an elite level to be an effective coach at, at, the, at that high level but um, it, it must help
1: well, I think it does in, in, in a skill-specific sport. I think it helps in a, in a team-orientated sport of choreography uh, on the field, whether it's basketball, uh, whether it's football, whether it's um, softball or baseball. I think in games like, uh, in competitions like swimming, track and field, where technique is involved uh, on a sole basis, I think that's, you know, it may be a little easier to deal with, but I, I really do believe that in our Team-oriented sports of choreography. That if you have played the game and that you have felt the fire, um, it's easier to relate the nuances of what's going to go on in this particular situation. In swimming, it's go as fast as you can. In track and field, it's go as fast as you can. And I know there's certain strategies that are involved in long-distance running and so forth. But in our sport, um, in baseball and basketball, there's going to be certain aspects of the game um, that require mental thought. That require aggressive approaches that require sitting back and making things happen. So I think the legitimacy of having played and been through a lot of experiences and then when you start talking to the players, they tend to gravitate more to the to the people that uh, sound like they know what they're talking about. And uh, I think that's helped out quite a bit.
2: I love that phrase. Uh, it helps that you've felt the fire because it feels that way when you're in the middle of a of a competition a really intense competition in a game that really matters. It does feel like you're you're being burned a little bit.
1: Well, it does, and but I, you know and at the same time the analogy of, of of being near the fire as a coach, you know, from experience, or being in the fire. I think you could lend, you know, the people that are near the fire, they they can't relate the experience of what we're talking about right now of being in the fire. So um, fortunate enough to have been taught by coaches that have been in the fire. And fortunate enough now to have coaches on my staff, not only at USF, but also Team USA, that were in the fire, in big fires, obviously. You know, with Stacy Newman, Tyron Mims, Mike White, Mike Larrabee, those guys and those women are phenomenal people and phenomenal coaches that played game at a very, very high level.
2: You know, um, your players at University of Southern Florida have been, you've been very successful on the field, but they also have really good GPAs. Um, how... Is that something you talk about? How, how does how did that come about that they're also really good students?
1: Well, I'd like to think that the players are a reflection on the coach. I mean, we have a lot of people that graduated um, magna cum laude and summa cum laude from our program. I I graduated magna laude, and and I want to tell you something that you know school sometimes was a challenge at times for myself, but I do recognize the fact that you know, and I've said this before that the toughest acre to cultivate is the six inches between your ears. And you have players that have a capacity to understand things. It's going to make it a lot easier to to have a lot of Ws at the end of the day uh, or at the end of a career. Um, but I've been very, very fortunate to be able to combine uh, that thought process of making sure that we get an athlete uh, that has the capacity and, and the want to get a college education. We we'll also have a great unique opportunity right now with Team USA, as we has, have had in the past, as you've seen by the rosters, uh, those players did not come from anything but great universities, and and they all got their degrees. Every player that's ever played in Team USA, except for one, um, had their degree. Um, And Crystal Bustos being that one, at the same time, Crystal Bustos is probably one of the smartest and nicest people I've ever met in my life. And and school was not her thing, but she's very successful in everything else that she does. Um, But everybody else, and, um, you know, makes it easy to to relate uh, because of their responsibilities. And the responsibilities when you go to college are to get your degree. And softball is just a vehicle. If we all understand that, we're all going to be in pretty good shape. You know, I'm not going to tolerate the person that comes in here just to play softball because you're not doing yourself any favor in the future. Um, And so we're trying at that point to to correlate the both of them. They can be done. You've seen what Stanford has done. Uh, You've seen what uh, some great schools have done. And I'll bet you right now, Jim, in all honesty, to tell you the truth that most of those young ladies that you see in the College World Series playing in softball are all going to get their degree at some point. And so they have the right idea, and we want to maintain that idea.
2: You know, you once said to me that um, you, you don't, you've never really thought of yourself as an athletic coach. You see yourself as a teacher uh, who just happens to use sports. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I,
1: I think that goes along with all my contemporaries. Hopefully, the thought process is the same way. You know, this is a great game. The bat and ball game is a great game because it's defined in successes and it's defined in how you um, respond to non-successes. And those are the challenges in life, and not to take away from any other sport, but uh, our game is very challenging and in the offensive mode because, you've all heard this before, and it's not to say anything that coach speak is not great, but to continue to hear the things like, in our game, if you fail, you know, uh, or rather if you succeed 30% of the time as an offensive player, you're very successful. Um, I think it's about teaching young kids how to handle uh, the adversities that go on in our game, and it's not going to go your way all the time. There's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. And, you know, don't get too high on the good days and don't get too low on the, on the bad days because tomorrow's another day. And I think relating that to life and relating that to academics and relationships and family life and so forth, uh, our game has a lot of correlation to real life. Uh, but it's nice to get away onto that oasis of, of the ball field every once in a while and have some fun and, uh, you know, be able to teach in a very, very uh, relaxed environment, and sometimes to teach in a very, very stringent environment that's uh, competitive. And uh, once again, all these things correlate together. I, at the end of the day, we're going to come up with a very, very good person for the for for society.
2: You know, when we were talking just now about, um, you know, academics, uh, and you you talked about, you know, making sure that the kids coming into your program really want to get a, a degree. Um, you know, it, it seems like you, um, it, could you talk about recruiting and how your, you know, positive coaching, really, how positive you are with your players, how that affects your ability to recruit uh, the kind of players you want?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, prior to this summer where, you know, I'm, I met you and uh, I met some people, I right? never, ever thought my coaching was any different than a lot of other things that were going on you know, nationwide. Um, I've always been this way and just recently I'm starting to hear things like, hey listen, there's a reason we committed to you. you. know, There's a reason we've done this. We've done our homework elsewhere. We see what's going on. Jim, I don't know and I, and I don't pretend to be anything different except I'm just taking all my experiences that I learned from great people. I don't have anything that I'm going to say is original. I learned some really good things from from Robin Roberts. I learned some really good things from Mike Candrea. I learned some really good things from Ralph Raymond, those guys that coached in the women's national team program. Um, I watched some people that maybe I don't want to be like, um, but I never thought that I was doing anything out of the ordinary uh, until sometimes you hear some horror stories that go on. Um, I've always treated my players with with respect in, in essence of knowing that I'm not talking down to them. I'm talking on a teammate level with them. They know the line of respect that they're not going to go above. And I think that comes from the respect that I show them as people first before I show them respect as a player. You know, you want to recruit people. And in all honesty also, Jim, I recruit the families of these players because when it's all said and done, after they've graduated from four years from, from USF, OK, they're going to be alums of this program for the rest of their lives and their family are going to be USF family members for the rest of their lives. So we're not getting somebody in here using them and getting rid of them. You know, we want these people involved with us for for years and years to come. And, and we've seen it. Uh, our alumni games that come back, you know, we're, we're packed. You know, our alums that come back for the for the games are, are immense. And uh, and at the same time, we you know, we live in Tampa, Florida, Jim, so I'm saying they're not going too far away once they graduate. They don't want to go to the cold weather sometimes. But, you know, the aspect of a positive environment here, they want to be involved with a positive environment. Um, and I'm and I'm glad to hear it's getting recognized if that's the case. But like I said, I've never thought it was anything different.
2: Yeah. Um, let's talk about the 2004 Olympic Games. Uh, team that went 9-0, only gave up one run the entire game's What led to that kind of amazing success?
1: You know, that's, uh, gosh, I'll tell you, that was, that was a great time because the work that the coaching staff put in between 2001 and 2004 with getting, uh, that's the best way to put this, um, to get the players to buy into a family oriented atmosphere that we're all in this together, um the trust factor of what we were doing was for one common goal. Um, it was time being spent with each other. More time was spent with each other uh, over a three-year period of time than I've ever done with any other program I've ever been involved with. And then having the right people involved. We might not have had the 15 most talented players in the country in 2004. As a matter of fact, I know we didn't. But we had the 15 greatest people that played softball at a very high level with us. And I think that's what made ultimately the major difference. Did we ever think that we were going to go in and dominate as much as we did in 2004? Absolutely not. You know, a lot of people don't know the story that, you know, the day before the Olympics started, uh, Lisa Fernandez, our number one pitcher at the time, was out with an ankle that was, you know, swelled up. We didn't even know she was going to pitch any of the games. And Jenny Finch had a, had a strained abdominal muscle. Uh, going on. And then Kat Osterman had a real sore elbow at that time. So we had one pitcher, Lori Harrigan, going in on day one that was healthy. You know, so we had gone through some adversities. Coach Candrea's wife had passed away three weeks prior to the first day of Olympics. We didn't even know if we wanted to go. But because we had solidified and gone through so much adversity training prior to that, what if this happens? We were prepared mentally to go into those games, and then all of a sudden it just clicked. And uh, we we were very dominant. But I think, as I said, time spent, uh, relationships, trust factor, um, preparing for adversity, all those aspects really were the uh, culmination uh, in one week that was probably one of the greatest weeks of my entire life.
2: Wow. You know, when you, you talk about a team being all in for each other, um it occurs to me, and I love your reaction, is it occurs to me that, that the greatest teams have to have a balance between competition and cooperation. If you, know, if, if you and I are competing to be the starting catcher and we're not competing as hard as we can against each other for that job, we're not going to push each other to be the best we can. And yet when you beat me out um, for this week, next week I'm going to go back to try to, to win that job, we've got to come together to cooperate uh, against the other team Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. I think that you see that with championship teams. Um, I don't think you get into any type of petty, you know, it's me against uh, her. Uh, It's me against him type of situations. Uh, Our philosophy during that time, my philosophy has always been, look, you're not competing against the next person to get that position. And, And believe me when I tell you, you compete every day for your playing time. You're competing against yourself to get better and if you can't get better within yourself and that other person is much better well obviously the decision is easy but i want you to make my decision tough by being better than you were yesterday for you okay don't worry about the other person you start worrying about the other person you're not gonna be able to focus on what your tasks are right now whether they're skills you know whether they're mental skills and i meant physical skills in the first part um and then team oriented skills so you need to really take care of yourself and that was one thing rob always talked about look worry about your own act okay we're pulling for you everybody's pulling for you okay but we want to see who can sprint the fastest and that means you're not competing against each other you're competing against yourself
2: wow two two just really lovely things there one is that you know I want you to make make my decision tough <laughs> that's, that's great and then everybody's pulling for you maybe maybe you don't get the starting position maybe you don't even play this week, but we're all pulling for you. that's that's really lovely um, d- during the, the most recent World Cup uh, the game against Japan, you were Mike for the whole game. first of all, does that does that affect you at all when you realize that everything you're saying can be heard by lots of people all over the country <laughs>
1: Well, you know, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make any bones about it. I mean, I think you're probably more conscientious of, of you know, maybe not um, saying something goofy. Um, you know, I think maybe you choose your words more carefully in respect of communication, because uh, you just never know. I mean, you know, you hear these guys sometimes on television go, "You know what? I, I didn't know the camera was on me. I didn't know I was, you know, this and that." You know, if you're, if, <laughs> if there's cameras around, it's going to be on you the whole time. I don't think we changed anything. We didn't change our game. We didn't change our approach. We really didn't change our language, you know, whatsoever, uh, being mic'd up. But I, I think sometimes, if anything, you probably got more conservative in respect. Maybe we wanted to go out to the mound one or two more times. But we said, you know what, nah, not really. Because you, sometimes you go out to the mound and you really won't say anything. You know, so why do, people always ask the question, like, well, wh- why did they go out to the mountains? So I think if you went out this time, and Mike White and myself were, were talking a little bit, is that you want to have something to say, you know, and you want to make sure that it's concise. You, you just don't want to go out and, and, and just break up the time right now that you're on national television or this and that, and, and sometimes you will to break up time movements and so forth. But as far as uh, making me feel uh, self-conscious uh, or conscientious of what was was being said now, I don't think that changed anything. I didn't, didn't change any approach how we talked to people. Um, and I think that's why you saw the successes that we had. Uh, it was basically, once again, just, hey, here's the situation. And you know, just a reminder, you've already trained for this. Everything's fine. Just let it happen. You know, let it, let it be done. You know, you're doing a great job. And I think that when people feel good about themselves, they have a tendency to play better. You know, if they also know that the head coaching staff is is right behind you, and, uh, you know, they're in the same boat you are. Uh, you take a look at the coaching staff, and if they're calm and they're under control and they understand it's a game, it's a great situation, a great challenge right now, you know, let's have fun and take advantage of it. And I think that's all we tried to do.
2: You know, there are two situations in that game I want to ask you about to zero in on. One is your pitcher fell behind a batter 3-0, and I think there was a runner on base. And you, I think at that point you had a one-run uh, one lead. Um, and... Can you kind of walk us through your conversation with, with that pitcher and how you uh, uh, got her to help, help her get out of that inning?
1: Well, I think, once again, I think the aspect of, of us coming out or, or talking to our pitchers in that situation is, and we're very fortunate because we had some really good pitching uh, on our team, was I, I never not liked what they were doing. I always loved their aggressiveness, you know, and sometimes they needed to know that. And our defense needed to know those type of things also uh, because sometimes there can always be doubt that creeps into some young people's minds about, hey, you know, we're in trouble here, 3-0 count, run on first base or whatever the deal is, and we don't have a 1-0 lead. I say, hey, look, stay aggressive right here. Don't change a thing. You know, don't give in. Don't change a thing. I like what you're doing. And I can turn to the defense and go, I like what she's doing. You know, and look who we got on the mound right now. What do you think? You know, and so they're going to go, yeah, absolutely, and, and they were, and that's all they needed to hear right there was just a reassurance of you know, no matter how big this game was, no matter how many people were watching, no matter what the three letters on your chest were, it's still a ball game, and we still had who we had on the mound. You know, we still had who we were, had to our left and who we had to our right. Take a look around. Enjoy yourselves. You know, I like what's going on, and if they hear the head coach likes what's going on, hey, it must be pretty good. So uh, I think that that helped, and that's all I was trying to do—just making sure everybody was on the same page.
2: Wow, that's fantastic. The the other one was uh, a situation where you, I believe this, the, the you had a batter uh, up. I mean, uh, who was got ahead in the count two zero? You had a runner on second, I think, and then um, you subbed in a pinch hitter, and you had a conversation with those two players—one you were taking out, and the pinch hitter you're putting in. Could you? talk a little bit about I mean it's got to be really tough for a kid to be in a big game like that and get ahead of the count and then be subbed out.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know I'm getting goosebumps right now cuz I forgot about that. <laughs> that was a key key game, a key point of the game right there. We had Megan Langerfield on the bench and uh, you know she had been struggling uh, all week long and she is one heck of a hitter. And so she's a, she swings away and the, the, the person at the plate was Raya Taylor, who was fun, had a phenomenal World Cup and a phenomenal summer for us. Um, but she's a slapper. And for her to, to be able to get the runner in from second base, you know, she's going to have to drive in the gaps. That's not her game. Her game is get on the ground and run like crazy. So, you know, the runner f- was actually at first base, and, uh, you oh. know, Raya worked count 1-0, and oh, and then we stole uh, the young lady on the next pitch to get her down to second base, and the count was now 2-0. and oh. Um, you know that Japan was going to pitch her, and they were going to pitch her to the left side of the infield, the hitter, ground ball, the shortstop, or, so, or third base to hold the runner and maybe make a play on Rea. Um, basically, the situation occurred. It was a real simple deal for me. We got the count 2 0 oh in the hitter's favor. It's a positive situation, a real win win situation for Megan. You know, up in the count 2 0, oh, you know, you've got a couple of pitches to see. They've got to come down the plate if they walk you. You know, we got the kid behind you now. It's second and third, one out if we bunter and we're in business. So we forced the issue. It was a great situation for it to occur. Megan came off the bench, told Ray – you know, I told Megan, hey, Megan, what a great situation to hit, 2-0. Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, and she said, yeah, look at me. She goes, you're right. And she went to the plate, and Ray is coming off. I said, Ray, you did a great job getting that count 2-0. and 0. You get this unbelievable opportunity right now with Megan to drive a run in on a 2-0 and 0 count. She looked at me, and she goes – you know, you you didn't know what the reaction was going to be. She looked at me, basically like, "Yeah, you're right. That's great." And, You know, she was the loudest one in the dugout. And then you know, the crazy part was that the pitcher pitched Megan real tough. I think it went to three and two on her, and then Megan laced a uh, shot down the left field line, and we scored the run to put us up a very comfortable position. And you know, I mean, here comes the run in, and then and then I pinch pinch ran back rare as Megan was coming off the field, and the biggest high fives and the biggest smiles in the world from those guys and that that might have been the the final nail in the coffin uh, for Japan in that game was oh my goodness gracious they just went to their tenth man and their tenth man did their job you know so that was that was a big deal
2: you know we talk about players making those around them better it seems like Raya Taylor is a perfect example of that no question wow. no question
1: I mean here's a young lady that's got an immense amount of talent and she was basically our go guy, you know, all summer. How she went and got on base, we scored, and here you come up in the gold medal game, and, you know, you trusted the coach that he made a decision uh, that that worked really well, you know. And if it didn't work, you know, we were going to be fine also. I mean, I I think that's the big thing as a coach is that you have to stick with your guts and understand, and your players got to understand and trust you that, all right, it's a great opportunity, you know, we're all for it, and there's no question that it's going to work. You know what? However, if it doesn't, so what? We're on to the next one. And that was, that's what this team was about this past summer.
2: What really strikes me is, you know, coaches, coaches have a sense of identity. And we talk about, you know, responsible coach having two goals, uh, winning and you know, using sports to teach life lessons and build character. And um, it seems to me that coaches who are so obsessed with winning and they get so much of their identity from that – um, they get in those pressure cooker situations, and they may they may not be able to react the way you did, to give your players exactly what they needed. You know, this is a challenge, you're you're up for it. I believe in you. I like what's going on. Um, it, it's kind of sad sometimes that coaches get so obsessed with winning that they can't give their players what they need in a given situation.
1: Well, I, I, I don't think that's mentoring. I don't think that's that's very good teaching. You know, I've never told my players and not one time this summer did I tell this team, you have to win, you know, and at no time did they ever see me, you know, have to win. I mean, we lost to Canada four to three on Saturday before we played Japan in the first game. And might, we have been looking ahead. We might've been, you know, but that's part of immaturity a little bit. You know, we have a lot of college kids on the group, on the team right there. Uh, a lot of other teams had six, seven, eight years of experienced players internationally. Uh, we might've been, but you know what? We were grouped afterwards and we took a look at what happened and what went on. And I guarantee you, you know, that that team won't do that again. Uh, and I think that was, a, that was a real good learning experience, was dropping that game to Canada to shake you up a little bit. And, and that's what you're going to get sometimes. If you, if you're going to get a great day. You might get two great days, and you might get a bad day. You know, but and you might get five great days, and you might just get a down day. But you've got to realize that, you know, and, because this is a game, and, and games are humbling. You know, if there were any guarantees right now, then I think we'd probably have about five or six triple crown winners in the horse racing.
2: <laughs>
1: there's any guarantees right now, the Patriots would have had a 19-0 season. You know, that's why they play the games on the field. I know that's cliche, but it's the truth. But I believe the environment is what's going to, in the long run, in the long term, the environment that you provide is going to make or break. Uh, your successful season whether you deem that a successful season at 500 or whether it's 600 or 700 or 750 you know whatever your, your thoughts are you, know, you have to live with those type of opportunities we understand there's only one team that wins a national championship we only understand there's one team that wins a gold medal doesn't mean there's 283 unsuccessful teams you know so I believe that the experiences that you get go long term and I, I think that's where we have to be
2: yeah. you, you have two daughters have you ever coached them
1: You know, um, I have not. And uh, I work with them, uh, but I never coached them in a team environment. I want them to enjoy what's going on and not have to look over their shoulder to please Dad. Um, And they understood uh, when I worked with them on the ball field that uh, my name was Coach. And then, uh, you know, off the field, my name was Dad. And one cute story was my oldest daughter, Tatiana, had a great workout one day. And she comes over and uh, she says, uh is dad here yet? <laughs> I said, dad's here. She goes, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and she gives me a big hug. So that's when she was about 9, 10 years old. She's uh, 15 years old right now. And uh, she has moved on now into the arts and uh, doing a lot of great stuff with uh, singing and theater and dancing. And, and then my youngest one is still playing. An 11 years old, little lefty, pitches, loves to just play catch with dad, and, and I'll take that right now. She doesn't want to play organized ball. She had a little bad experience last year. Uh, but she's going to take the fall off and the uh, summer off and just play catch and hit with me, and then she'll get the fire back if she wants. to if she doesn't, she doesn't. But, um, you know, she enjoys being out there right now, which is good.
2: Fantastic. You know, um, we talk to parents all across the country, and, and we hear over and over again the pressure they feel to have their kids specialize in one sport at a really early age because they're afraid their kids are going to get left behind if they if they play multiple sports. What's your take on that?
1: Uh, you know I, i'm I'm gonna just jump on a grandstand right now and say that that's uh, erroneous. i I think that you should play as many sports as you can. Um, I think it'll make you a better athlete in the sport that you might have more passion for. Um, but I do believe that rest and recovery in the sports uh, is is very important. In other words, if you're playing softball uh, in the summertime, I don't believe you should be playing softball in the fall. I think you should be playing volleyball or basketball and come back to softball in the spring, you know, go out there and do some other things. I do believe that we're um, sending players now into college that are coming in hurt and tired um, and burned out mentally uh, that way. But I I, I I, I, just think we're getting a little too crazy right now. I, I think we need to step back and start to think about what's best for the young people. Uh, without calling it child abuse, we're getting a lot of injuries for young ladies at age 15, 16, 17 years old, they're devastating life injuries right now. And that's not good.
2: You know, one of my uh, pet peeves or hobby horses, whatever you want to say it is, I, there's a softball field near our, our house and I take my dog running, walking by it a lot. And I see pretty young girls, seven, eight, nine years old, working on the windmill, fast pitch, and Typically, there's two things that happens. One is the pitcher overwhelms everybody, so nobody the, the ball doesn't get put in play very much, or the pitcher has control problems and walks people, and the ball doesn't get put in play. And I really wonder if we wouldn't be producing better softball players at the elite level if we played slow pitch until kids are like 11 or 12.
1: I, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. I mean, I you know, little league has gone to the coach pitch deal. Um, which is, but the ball gets put in play. You know, it's, it's, it's slow pitch, basically. The pitchers are just lobbing it over the plate. That's exactly right. I, I think we need to establish, you know, when do we need to get competitive? And I've always said that why do we have a scoreboard before the age of 12? Uh, is it for the parents? Because I know this, or even at the age of 10, because I do know this. When my girls played at 10 and under ball, their biggest concern, Jim, about the ball game, was where they were going to go for ice cream afterwards. Yep. Where's the pool party? When can I hang out with the girls on the team? That was their biggest deal. You know, The competition was occurring on the sidelines. And that, to me, is, is not healthy. Nope. That's not healthy at all. So I, I was hoping that when my daughters were coming up through the leagues, when they saw myself sitting on a lawn chair behind the left center field fence, it wasn't about being arrogant that I didn't want to be around people. It was like, come on, let them play.
2: You know, there there, um, there, there was a, an article, I, I was in Washington, D.C. many years ago, and they had uh, a, a feature in the Washington Post, how to, how I keep fit. And they profiled this, this sports mom who, uh, her kids played lots of games, baseball, softball games, and every game she would walk around the field. And she'd kind of keep her eye on the game a little bit, but basically she got her exercise, she didn't get so... Uh, you know, evoked that she was <laughs> yelling at anything. She kind of left the game. The game belonged to the kids, not to her. And she got her exercise.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, why not? It's a great opportunity to take advantage of it.
2: Ken, this has been fantastic. And I also, you know, you're one of the very newest members of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board, joining Phil Jackson and Doc Rivers and Steve Young and people like that. Um, I really want to uh, thank you for your support of the Positive Coaching Alliance movement and the great example you're uh, serving up for youth coaches and high school coaches. It's, it's really wonderful and thank you so much.
1: Jim, thank you very much. Very humbling to be uh, uh, mentioned in those names and uh, your reputation and your organization's reputation. I'm, I'm very excited for it.
2: Great. Ken, thank you so much.
1: All right,
0: Jim, take care. To learn more about responsible sports, including downloading valuable tools on how to help your athletes bounce back from mistakes, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.